You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. Diabetes during pregnancy can pose a serious threat to mother and fetus. What are the risks? Do long-term diabetics face different dangers than those with a new diagnosis during pregnancy? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Moore, professor and chairman of the Department of Reproductive Medicine, University of California School of Medicine at San Diego. He is a nationally recognized expert on the diagnosis and treatment of diabetes in pregnancy. Welcome, Dr. Moore. It's good to be here. Okay, well, let's distinguish between two groups of pregnant diabetics and then consider them separately, those who have pre-existing disease and those who develop carbohydrate intolerance in the third trimester. What about this more mild group, the latter group, those newly diabetic during pregnancy? What are their maternal risks? The risks that they don't have are of having glucose abnormalities during embryogenesis. So it's really, by and large, and I want to come back and qualify that in a minute, by and large, their diabetes or glucose intolerance appears somewhere between 20 and 28 weeks of pregnancy. So their real problem is just, if you will, overfeeding of the fetus. So the fetus accumulates excessive nutritional stores and compiles this as fat. Now, the process of accumulating all those additional stores has other untoward effects on the baby, but obviously an overfat fetus is a challenge uh, in delivery and, as we know, later in life. What about any other risks for other medical conditions such as gestational hypertension, any other comorbidities that increase with the late onset of diabetes in the third trimester of pregnancy? Well, to the extent that individuals who develop gestational diabetes oftentimes are of older age and have higher body mass index, gestational hypertension, chronic hypertension, these two elements are more common in women who have gestational diabetes. Whether they're linked causally, I think, is not clear, uh, but there's no question they tend to occur together. Do the gestational diabetics have an increased risk of cesarean section that would be predicted by their body mass index? Is it a separate uh, risk factor? Yes, it, it is a separate risk factor, and uh, although interestingly enough, if you compare the effect on fetal growth of gestational diabetes versus a woman of equivalent body mass index who doesn't have gestational diabetes, it's the body mass index that is the stronger driver of excessive fetal growth than maternal uh, diabetes. Now, that's an interesting uh, observation that's been made multiple times, so I think we can believe it, that fat mother is more likely to have an obese fetus and uh, newborn, but what are the mechanisms that lead to this are, at present, I think, largely speculative. Well, I think that's worth repeating for our audience, and that, you know, again, a very important point that I think a lot of physicians don't realize, and that is an elevated body mass index is actually a more important predictor of excessive fetal growth than simply having gestational diabetes. Did I get that right? You got that right, and that's definitely a clinical pearl that we need to live by every day. I think a lot of obstetricians have been taught traditionally that 
Fetuses born to mothers with gestational diabetes, particularly diabetes that wasn't pre-existing, are at increased risk for shoulder dystocia because they're at increased risk for excessive weight gain. Now, is that a principle that should apply to simply the woman with the elevated body mass index who doesn't have gestational diabetes? Well, now we get into this confusing problem of fetal weight, and if you want to call it fetal weight percentile, and the problem of fetal obesity, because we know that to use a sort of a male analogy, you could have a six foot three inch, 175 pound male that we would not think of as being obese, whereas somebody that was five foot two, we consider very obese. Well, the problem is, so we have the body mass index for adults, but we don't have a good measure of obesity for the fetus or even the newborn. There is something called the ponderal index, which is the baby weight divided by the length. It, in fact, is so gestational age dependent that it isn't a good descriptor of how fat the baby is. When you get around to the question of shoulder dystocia, the problem that I think will be familiar to many listeners is having a baby's head pop out that delivered without any problem, and yet you know, this rather massive shoulder and trunk that, that is left to deliver. The reason is we have a baby in diabetes that's accumulating fat. The baby of the mother who herself is fat has accumulated some truncal fat, but the rest of the picture of those babies is not as well described as babies whose mothers have gestational diabetes. So for the present time, I would have to say most of the data say that the worst situation is having a four kilo baby whose mother has diabetes in which the delivery has been assisted with forceps or vacuum. That's a very high-risk group, and the mother with the obese newborn is herself is obese but not under our best definitions, not diabetic, has a lower risk. But it's definitely, for that woman, still higher than if she was of normal body mass. What about the direct risk to the fetus of gestational diabetes in the third trimester? What are some of the issues for the baby? For instance, do they have an increased risk of respiratory distress syndrome? Yes. The way I like to think of it is this is even though it may be only for, you know, 10 or 15 weeks of gestation, the baby is subjected to episodes of extra glucose crossing the placenta into the fetal compartment. The fetus really has an obligation to store all those extra calories, and those extra calories, you know, obviously produce truncal body fat. The other thing that it does is its actual work. And if you monitor the oxygen in a fetus who's, who is hyperglycemic, the oxygen level is reduced because there's work involved in storing the glucose. So every time a mother's glucose goes high, fetal oxygen level drops down. Now, you know, what's high and how far down is obviously on a scale. But babies whose mothers have glucoses that are not in control have episodic hypoxemia, and this causes changes in the myocardium, thickens the myocardium as the baby responds to hypo, uh, hypoxemia with hypertension. And so we've got a sort of a stiff heart, that may not perform well after birth, even if the lung profile has been checked and found to be mature. The issue about the lungs and their readiness to be born is, I think, still somewhat controversial because many babies with today's management of diabetes come out and have just perfectly good lung function. In a study that we did where we went back over a large series of amniocentesis between two institutions, 
and compared pregestational diabetic women to women with gestational diabetes and a group of normals, we found about a 7 to 10 day delay in the onset of phosphatidylglycerol production in the amniotic fluid at approximately 35 weeks. So if at 35 weeks, all the diabetic pregnancies studied on average were 10 days behind in production of phosphatidylglycerol. By the time one gets to around 38 weeks, that difference is actually not statistically significant. So the delay in lung maturation is probably not functionally important after about 38 weeks. And instead, what we see with babies that don't perform well in the newborn intensive care unit after a diabetic pregnancy, even gestational diabetic, is either related to cardiac dysfunction from myocardial thickening or the sort of wet lung phenomenon that we see more commonly also with diabetes. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Thomas Moore, a nationally recognized expert on gestational diabetes. We are discussing the maternal and neonatal morbidity of diabetes in pregnancy. We were uh, just discussing the relative hypoxemia due to the extra work required in storing fat in fetuses exposed to excess maternal uh, glucose. Does this have any effect on a developing brain? Well, we don't know of that. There really haven't been any great studies of long-term follow-up of the neurological performance of infants who have been just exposed to hyperglycemia. Certainly, we recognize that in pregestational diabetes, where glucose abnormalities are imposed during embryogenesis and early development, that there are structural abnormalities as well as probably structural abnormalities of heart, spinal cord, and, and even brain. But in gestational diabetes, we cannot show that, although there are some issues about downstream adult or even childhood and adolescent obesity that may have to do with brain programming in the presence of hyperglycemia. What about the risk of stillbirth in women with diabetes that just begins in a third trimester? Do they have an increased risk? The increased risk, if it exists, and theoretically it does exist, is very difficult to detect in today's modern environments where most patients with recognized gestational diabetes are in some form of testing regimen that really brings their risk of stillbirth back to the levels that we expect in the general population. So I would say it's the undiagnosed diabetic pregnancy that's at risk. The testing regimens we use today pick up only 80 to 90 percent of the truly hyperglycemic uh, individuals, and uh, those babies are at increased risk. If I listen carefully, then you're suggesting that the actual antenatal testing that people do with fetal monitoring and ultrasounds actually does mitigate the stillbirth risk in gestational diabetics? I would like to say that, but in order to do that, we'd have to have a nice randomized trial where we don't test gestational diabetics, or we do, but everything else is the same, and that uh, hasn't been shown. Instead, what's been done is to look to see, compared to a group of controls, or normal glycemic, is there any difference in stillbirth rate? But remember, the controls don't necessarily get all this testing, and so the tested gestational diabetic population and the general population seem to have similar stillbirth rates. I see. So we actually just don't know what the utility of testing is because nobody's really done the study, and not sure anybody wants to either. Yes. What about the risk of congenital anomalies in those diabetics who are diabetic before they get pregnant? 
the risk of a congenital anomaly is definitely related very specifically to the degree of hyperglycemia that exists during the embryonic period. That was recognized about 30 years ago, and one can roughly scale the risk of a congenital anomaly against the hemoglobin A1C in maternal blood obtained somewhere in the first trimester. And it raises the risk on an order of two to four times higher than one would expect in a normal glycemic population. So a key take-home point would be before a diabetic becomes pregnant, it would be exceptionally desirable to have ideal glucose control well before conception. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. And actually, in the studies that looked at preconceptional control in the diabetic population compared to a group that didn't get preconceptional control and compared to normals, at least two studies showed that the outcomes of the diabetic patients who obtained excellent or normal preconceptional control, their risk of birth defects was actually lower than the general population. I want to thank Dr. Thomas Moore, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the maternal and neonatal morbidity of diabetes and pregnancy. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.